Hello, everyone. We'll begin with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for giving us this precious book of Hebrews. Thank you for the unique insight it gives us on the priesthood of your son, Jesus Christ, and how he's not only our savior, but he's also our advocate, our spokesman, even now, representing us as high priest. We ask that you will be with us this evening and help us to understand as we explore the many facets of the book of Hebrews. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our high priest and soon coming king. Amen. Tonight we're going to be doing part two of the book of Hebrews. Sometimes when I do part two of a book, I wonder at the beginning if I'll have, have enough information but it was amazing how much this grew once I got into it. So I may go over just a little bit. And if I go over too much, I'll just cut it short and finish it next time. Because next time we'll be doing the book of First John, which is a shorter book. There are three key words in the book of Hebrews. One of those is better. Christ is better than the angels. He has given us better things, is symbolized by a better person, offers a better hope, has a better covenant with better promises, offered a better sacrifice, gives us a better possession, a better country, a better resurrection, based on the shedding of better blood, the blood of the spotless lamb of God. The second word is eternal. Christianity also provides an eternal salvation, warns of eternal judgment for those who reject it, gives eternal redemption to those who accept it, which is applied by his eternal spirit, gives to us an eternal inheritance, which comes through an eternal covenant. And the third word is once, once for all. Regarding once for all salvation, Hebrews says, we were once for all enlightened to it. Jesus entered once for all into the holy place to obtain it. He once for all put away our sins. We will face once for all judgment without it. He offered himself once for all to bear our sins. He purged our sins once for all by it. He offered his body once for all for our sins. So those are the three key words that run through the book of Hebrews. Last time I mentioned the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. I just mentioned them. Uh, tonight, we're going to look at them a little more extensively. There are six of these, the peril of drifting, the peril of doubting, the peril of dullness, the peril of departing, the peril of despising, and the peril of denying. So we'll take a look at these passages and consider who they apply to and what they mean, what their application is. The peril of drifting. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention 
to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to, to us by those who heard. Well, God also bear witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Prayer of doubting. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you away to, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm unto the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The Pearl of Dullness. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The peril of departing. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. The peril of despising. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession than an inviting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Pearl denying. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have not, that things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. Now, before we look at these passages, these warning passages in terms of, of how they apply to believers, we have to consider one other objection that some raise. Some maintain that these warning passages are not directed to believers, but rather to unbelievers, nominal Christians, professing Christians, not true Christians. There are several problems with taking this to refer to unbelievers. First, the passage declares, emphatically, what one of the passages declares, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. But even though Arminians would believe that once a person has backslidden, it is impossible for him to be saved again. So that is, that is one reason why it's very doubtful that this could apply just to unbelievers and not believers. Further, some of the phrases are very difficult to take any other way than that the person was saved, the person was truly saved. For example, uh, those spoken of had experienced repentance, which is the condition of salvation. They were enlightened and had tasted the heavenly gift. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit. They had tasted the good word of God. They have tasted the powers of the age to come. It's very doubtful that this could possibly apply to unbelievers. It sounds very much like we are talking about believers. 
But once we decide that it's talking about believers, the warning passages, then we have to explore what is the possible, what is the purpose, what is the purpose of the warning passages? Why exactly are they given to believers? There are basically four views of the warning passages found in the book of Hebrews. First of all, there's the loss of salvation view. There's the view that uh, we are warned about this so that we will persevere and not abandon our salvation. Then there's the loss of rewards view. According to this view, the warning passages are not given to us to prevent us from falling away, losing our salvation, but they are given to us to prevent us from losing our rewards, to warn us against that. Then there are, is the test of genuineness view. And I'll explain more about what that means shortly. And finally, there's the hypothetical loss of salvation view. In um, his book, The Race Set Before Us, Thomas Schreiner gives us some excellent illustrations of these various views of the warning passages. As the saying goes, a picture is worth a thousand words. So I think um, his, his illustrations will make it very plain what these different views are. The loss of salvation view. So the racetrack, the race that is set before us as Christians, the racetrack represents salvation. Christians may abandon the race and lose salvation, according to this view. So the prize towards which we're running is salvation, eternal life. And the warnings and admonitions raise doubts of receiving the prize. That's the loss of salvation view. I don't find that this view acceptable. There are many passages of scripture which give us assurance of salvation, which tell us that our salvation is certain, that we can't lose it, that we are kept in his grasp. This is one of my, one of my favorite passages in this regard, Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the people who believe that you can lose your salvation, they would say, well, nobody can take your salvation from you, but you yourself can abandon it. You can walk away from it. Well, this passage tells us that, that that is not possible because it tells us that nothing in all creation can deprive us of our relationship with God. And to those who say that they could, could lose their salvation, I would say, well, aren't you a created being? Aren't you a created thing? This passage tells us that nothing in all creation can take away our salvation. The second view is the loss of rewards view. 
According to this view, the racetrack represents salvation. Christians may abandon the race and lose rewards. Not lose salvation, but lose rewards. So the prize is not salvation, but rewards. Warnings and admonitions raise doubts of receiving the prize. So according to this view, a Christian can't lose his salvation, but he might lose his rewards. Well, there are several passages in New Testament that talk about the rewards that we as Christians can look forward to. One of the most well-known is in 1 Corinthians 3. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. The reason that I don't find this loss of rewards view acceptable is that there is nothing in this passage, nor in any other passage of the New Testament, that indicates that we can accrue rewards, we can accumulate rewards, and then later on lose them based on our subsequent performance. Rewards are given as a result of our Christian lives at the end of our Christian lives. We don't have rewards and then lose them and then gain them and then lose them. There's nothing in, in the New Testament that tells us that. So I don't think you can view these warning passages as a potential loss of reward. The next view is the test of genuineness view. So the racetrack represents salvation. To uh, abandon the race proves one was never saved. Christians run with their back toward the goal to assess their progress on the track. The prize is salvation, eternal life. But the, a person is always running backwards because he's he's always looking back to see, well, did I did I manifest the, the requisite amount of, of good works so that I can be sure that I'm saved? Warnings and admonitions, he says, call for retrospective and introspective self-examination to assess whether one is already saved. So the person who holds this view is, is very um, vulnerable to feelings, to, to uh, inner doubts. He, he's always looking back. He's always saying, well, so far so good. So far so good. Oops, I really blew it there. Oh, I must not be saved after all. Well, is that how we should live our lives as Christians? In 1 John 5.13, we'll be looking at 1 John next week. John said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So it's not something that we should be constantly in doubt about, constantly questioning. You can know that you have eternal life. So that leaves the hypothetical loss of salvation view, which is the view that I described to. In this view, the racetrack represents salvation. One who is already saved cannot abandon the race. The prize is salvation, eternal life. Warnings and admonitions only caution what would happen if one could fail to endure to the end. So these warnings tell us what would happen if we did fail, did fail to endure to the end. But of course, those who are those who are saved, those who have obtained salvation, 
are held firmly in the grip of the Savior. We don't hold on to him. He's holding on to us. So we can be certain that we are, are saved and that we will endure to the end through the sovereign power of God. The example, the illustration that Eric has often used is the um, illustration of the, the uh, open elevator and the, the warning sign that says, you know, danger, do not enter. Because if you do, you're, you're going to fall to your death in this elevator shaft. Well, everybody sees that sign and nobody ventures over to, to test it out. Nobody really wants to find out if they're going to fall to their death. They just avoid the elevator. The sign is 100% effective. And the same is true with the warning passages in Hebrew and elsewhere in scripture. Next, I wanted to take a look at the elementary principles that are given in Hebrews chapter six. The elementary principles that were given are the repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. It's ironic that we should have to talk about these things because the writer of Hebrews said that we shouldn't need to talk about these things. He said that this is missing information, just baby stuff. We should uh, just be able to set this aside and, and go on to more advanced matters. But <laughs> ironically, we do have to talk about these things because since the book of Hebrews was written, almost 20 centuries of church history have elapsed. And many of these elementary principles that are listed in Hebrews chapter six, verses one and two, have been forgotten or have been distorted or have been ignored or have been denied. So I do wanna spend a few minutes talking about these elementary principles that are given to us in Hebrews 6. The first one is repentance. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. So that is the first item that we want to look at. From an apostolic point of view, dead works are sins. What is sin? The Bible defines sin as transgression of the commandments of the Lord. We'll see that in, in 1 John next week too. The apostles understood that true repentance calls for a complete break with sin and the culture of sin. One who claims to be a Christian but persists in sin deceives himself. He is not repenting. He is, acting as a, he is not acting as a true Christian. The apostle John Put it this way, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever, practice righteous, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Repentance means surrendering, surrendering our whole life to God, our whole life, all our passions, all our desires, all our behaviors, all of our motivations, all of our plans, all our relationships. The gospel taught by the apostles calls for discipleship, learning, studying, continually correcting our lives, continually letting the teaching of Jesus correct us, redirect us, and transform us. Entering the kingdom calls for ongoing life of relationship and repentance, trust and obedience, faith and deeds, walking in the paths of discipleship as we all strive to enter through the narrow gate, setting our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. As we learn in the book of Hebrews, seeking first the kingdom of his father and his righteousness. The kingdom of God is rep represented by a wedding banquet. Those who attend the banquet are attired in robes of righteousness, not righteousness generated by our merit, but righteousness that results when we repent and the Holy Spirit works through us. Let us rejoice and exult, says the book of Revelation, and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The man without the wedding clothes in Christ's parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22, is the man who thinks he will be part of the kingdom without repenting. He will not. The Apostle Paul says, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. It says in 2 Timothy 2.19. The second of the basic elementary principles is faith. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. The, the second of these elementary principles is faith toward God. Why is this one on the list at all? Doesn't it just go without saying that we have faith in God? How can faith in God be construed to be a fundamental, distinctive teaching of the believers in Jesus? Other people, besides Christians, believe in God, they say. Imagine a conversation between a first century Messianic Jew and his Sadducee neighbor. The Sadducee says to the Messianic Jew, tell me about Messianic Judaism. What are the fundamental things you Nazarenes believe? The Messianic Jew responds, well, for one thing, we believe in God. The Sadducee says, so do we. You must be a Sadducee. 
the Greek does not say faith in God. It says, Christos epithaon, which is better translated as faith on God. Not faith in God, but faith on God. It indicates something more than just believing in God's existence, as do the shuddering demons of James 2.19. Believe upon God essentially communicates relying on him for something. Not just believing that he exists, but trusting in him. Faith on God is the confident belief that God exists, he rewards merit and punishes sin, and he will make good on all the prophetic promises he has made regarding the redemption, kingdom, the Messiah. Was there anything about the way that the disciples of Jesus taught faith on God that was different from the way others, say the Pharisees, taught? Yes. The disciples of Jesus taught faith on God on the basis of the revelation and resurrection of Jesus. Whereas the Pharisees trusted God to fulfill his promises someday in the future, the believers in Jesus had already begun to witness the fulfillment of those promises in the revelation and resurrection of Jesus. In the apostolic world, the revelation, death, and resurrection of the Messiah brought faith in God to a whole new level. Followers of Jesus were no longer merely practicing religion. Their religion had become their reality. Thereafter, they could only express their relationship with God through their belief in Jesus and their relationship with him. The next time you read the New Testament epistles, pay attention to how the apostles interweave every mention of God with the mention of Jesus. For example, Paul opens his epistle to the Romans. Grace to you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In all their writings, the apostles spoke of God through Jesus, and of the gift of God in Jesus, and of the grace of God given in Jesus, and of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And they gave praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they ascribed glory to God through Jesus Christ. The next of the elementary principles is instruction about washings. What does that refer to? Instruction about washings. What does that mean? Apparently we should know instruction about washings is considered so basic, so fundamental to faith in Jesus that the writer of the epistle of Hebrews compares it to milk. It's not even solid food. If that is the case, why do we have so little idea what he's talking about? You might wonder about the translation washings. That's how the NASB, the ESV, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and the Net Bible translated. The King James, the, the New Revised Standard Version, and the New Living Translation translated as baptisms. But even if you like the translation baptisms better, you still have to ask the question, why baptisms, plural? Christians are only baptized once. 
the Greek does indeed say baptismon case, and baptismon is plural. So it is baptisms or washings. Many Bible scholars recognize that the passage is not just talking about Christian baptism, but about other baptisms, other immersions as well. When the Apostle Peter, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost said, repent and be baptized, no one in his audience said, baptism? What's that? What are you talking about? I've never heard of baptism before. They all knew what baptism meant. They had never yet been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, but they had been baptized, immersed, many times. Baptism didn't suddenly appear on the scene in the New Testament without any context, without any precedent. The Jewish people were familiar with a long history of baptisms, immersions, for many different reasons. Submersion in water for ritual purposes was a common part of Jewish life in the first century. Jewish people immersed in water to remove Levitical impurity. The Torah prohibited the ritually impure from entering the temple or from eating of the sacrifices until they had immersed in living water, meaning water that was naturally flowing, such as rainwater, spring, river water water that has not been artificially drawn from a well or cistern. That's what is meant by living water. People immersed in the mikvah, a naturally fed pool, for other reasons as well. After a woman completes menstruation, she immerses in a mikvah before rejoining her husband. Gentiles undergoing conversion to Judaism immersed in a mikvah as their final rite of passage. The immersion symbolized a legal change in status. So the person went into the mikvah as a Gentile, he came out as a convert to Judaism. It was in this context that the first Christians were baptized into the name of Jesus of Nazareth, identifying with him in his death, burial, and resurrection in the ultimate, once for all, baptism. Where did they find enough water to baptize those 3,000 new converts on the day of Pentecost? Undoubtedly, in the many, many mikvot, plural mikvah, south of the Temple Mount. The next of the elementary principles is the laying on of hands. What is this laying on of hands all about? Three different functions for the laying on of hands appear in the Bible. First is bestowing of blessings. Next is ritual substitution. And third is ordination into office. Many will be quick to add to the list the impartation of divine healing, but healing really belongs to the broader category of bestowing a blessing. So the three categories, once again, are to confer a blessing, to invest identity, and to ordain successors. Bestowing blessings would include uh, upon children, upon disciples, 
upon petitioners and upon the sick. When the patriarchs blessed their sons, they laid their hands on their heads. For example, when Jacob blessed Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Jesus blessed children by laying his hands upon them. In Mark 5, one of the rulers of the Capernaum synagogue asked Jesus to heal his daughter by laying his hands upon her. In the book of Acts, Ananias lays hands on Paul and prays for him, and he recovers his eyesight. While stranded in Malta, after Paul was shipwrecked on his way to Rome, Paul healed a man with fever and dysentery, laying his hands upon him. Laying on of hands was also for ritual substitution. And we see this in two different categories in the Old Testament, uh, as it relates to sacrificial animals and as it relates to the Levites. The book of Leviticus describes how a worshiper bringing the sacrifice to the temple laid hands on his animal before offering it to the Lord. The worshiper regarded the sacrificial animal as a substitute for himself. It symbolized both ownership of the animal and an investment of the man's identity into the animal. The animal was to be his surrogate. The laying on of hands terminology appears in Numbers 8.10, in which all Israel laid their hands upon the Levites to designate their tribe as surrogates. Substitutes in their place in the worship of the Lord on behalf of the whole nation. Now, I want you to keep that in mind now, because later on I'm going to talk about Jesus as our sacrifice and as our high priest. The laying on of hands was also used in ordination. We see that in the transfer from Moses to Joshua and also to the elders and teachers and the conferring of the Spirit. The laying on of hands was also used to indicate an investment of identity and authority in an ordination ritual. Not long before he died, Moses was instructed by the Lord to lay his hands on Joshua and commission him. Through this ordination by laying on of hands, the Spirit was conferred upon Joshua, as well as upon the 70 elders. When the Jerusalem community of Messianic Jews became too large for the 12 apostles to effectively govern, they appointed seven deacons to handle the administration, praying and laying hands upon them. When the believers in Antioch decided to send Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. In 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul said to Timothy, do not neglect the gift you hope, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, apparently Paul was present when the elders laid their hands on Timothy and prayed for him. I remind you to fan into the flame 
the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So that was the laying on of hands in scripture into the New Testament. The next elementary principle is resurrection of the dead. From time to time, I hear evangelists say to unbelievers, you need to believe in Jesus so that when you die, you can live with God in heaven forever. I cringe when I hear that. The evangelist means well, but he is totally ignoring the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. I have heard many funeral sermons where the scripture passages about the state immediately after death and passages about the resurrection of the dead are garbled together indiscriminately with no explanation of how all this works. I feel sorry for unbelievers who hear these messages because they are getting a very confused and confusing eschatology. They are left with the impression that the resurrection takes place immediately after a person's death. A popular song says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. If by this world, you mean this present evil system, which currently dominates the world, I would agree. But if you mean this globe, this planet, this particular location in the universe, that is not what scripture teaches. Heaven should not be viewed as the final location, the ultimate destination of a believer. In order to understand the Christian hope for eternal life, we need look no further than this central thing, the most important event in history so far, the empty tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. Why was it empty? Was it because his flesh and bones had dematerialized and been replaced with some other spiritual body? Was it because Jesus had gone to heaven? No, the tomb was empty precisely because Jesus had not gone to heaven. He was alive in his own body and on the earth. The apostles saw him and touched him and ate with him. He proved to them that he was not a ghost. When the apostles went out testifying to the resurrection, they did not proclaim the message of a Christ crucified who on the third day went to heaven. They proclaimed Christ crucified who on the third day rose from the dead. The good news is about resurrection, physical, bodily, literal resurrection from the dead. That is the true Christian hope. This is what we live for, and this is what we die for, and why we die fearlessly. <clears throat> the belief that the dead will live again, and that death is not the end. It is part of the gospel message, part of the good news. When God raises the dead at the end of the age, he will revive their physical bodies and return their souls to those bodies. In the process of that miracle, he will transform those physical bodies so that they cannot die again. 
they become immortal bodies. The resurrected body will never die. The belief in literal resurrection does not enjoy much popularity in today's sensible, scientifically sober modern world. Resurrection defies common sense, medical science, and everything that experience tells us. We do not find it so difficult to imagine a life after death of disembodied souls or some consciousness set free or returned to its original source. The more vague and abstract, the better and easier to believe. The difficulty Christians have struggled with down through the centuries has been the question of how to fit this whole resurrection from the dead thing in with the hope of spending eternity in heaven. The two ideas have never worked well together. In the Bible, the resurrected do not spend eternity in heaven. The resurrected spend eternity here on earth in the millennial kingdom and then on into the eternal state. Now granted, the earth will be a drastically transformed place in the millennial kingdom and even more so in the eternal state after the elements melt with fervent heat and new Jerusalem descends to the earth. But it will still be the earth nevertheless. The final item on our list of elementary principles is eternal judgment. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The final judgment occupies an important place in the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. His teachings are closely linked to the idea of preparing for this final judgment Almost everything he says has an eye toward it. Read the following montage of Judgment Day teachings from the words of Jesus. And here's a, a listing of, of the verses that we will look at. Jesus on the judgment, the final judgment. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The context for these verses is Jesus giving the parable about the, the fish in the dragnet there are good fish and there are bad fish and they are separated. And he tells us that in the same way, the angels will separate the evil from the righteous. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. 
the men of Nineveh will rise up with the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented of the preaching of Noah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Did I say Noah and then Jonah? Of course. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus spoke a great deal about the eternal judgment. His teaching came back to the subject again and again. He saw himself as personally taking on a significant role in this final judgment. Daniel 7 is a programmatic text on the subject of eternal judgment. In this passage, uh, Daniel received an apocalyptic vision of the times to come, a peek into the future. The Lord gave him dreams and visions about the future and the end of time. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne, was, his throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Suddenly one steps forward to deliver the sentencing. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Jesus' own self-identity and understanding of Messiah centered on this important passage from Daniel. He understood the term, one like a son of man, as a title for the Messiah, and he believed himself to be that son of man. A final judgment is coming for every human being, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. A final judgment is coming for every human being. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body. Knowledge of this coming judgment was Paul's motive for evangelism. He said, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That's why he considered it so urgent to persuade others. The shadow of punishment and the hope of reward in the future judgment permeate all the teaching of the New Testament. The anticipation of the final judgment runs through it all and ties it all together. The eternal judgment is the great reversal in which all that is wrong with the world 
will be set right. Then the first will be last, and the last will be first. The lowly and downtrodden will be lifted up, and the proud will be brought low. Next, I want to take a quick look at Melchizedek. There are three places in scripture where this mysterious figure Melchizedek is mentioned. In Genesis, after Abraham returns from his battle with the kings, he pays tithes to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine for Abraham. So that's the first time in scripture that this mysterious figure Melchizedek is mentioned. He's mentioned again in Psalm 110 verse 4. And then he's mentioned several times in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. Well, who is this mysterious figure, Melchizedek? Well, there's a Jewish tradition that Melchizedek was Shem, the son of Noah. The chronology does work out in the Masoretic text that Shem would still have been alive at the time of Abraham. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that scripture doesn't give us his genealogy. It clearly does give us a genealogy for Shem, raising him all the way back to Adam. So I don't think that this is correct, that Shem, that Melchizedek is Shem, or Shem is Melchizedek. Many Christians have concluded that Melchizedek was an Old Testament Christology, a pre-incarnate appearance of God in the Son. And of course, the basis on the fact that uh, we are told that Melchizedek uh, had neither a mother or father, had neither beginning nor end of days. But the fact that scripture doesn't tell us about his birth or death doesn't mean that these events didn't occur, just that we aren't told about them. So it doesn't necessarily follow that Melchizedek was a Christology, re reincarnate appearance of God the Son. We simply have to be content with the meager information that we have about this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, right now. All we know that he, is that he was a priest of God, that he was uh, in an order of priests that preceded the Levitical priesthood, and that Jesus Christ is later said to be of this priesthood and likened to Melchizedek. That's all we know. I just wanted to mention briefly the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. It's mentioned here in the, in the book of Hebrews. This incident described in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14, where Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac as a son and laid him on the altar. And he was prepared to go through with it to sacrifice Isaac. But then of course, his hand was stayed and a ram was caught in the thicket who provided the, the sacrifice, substitute for Isaac. Uh, this is described or referred to in, in John chapter eight. Uh, and Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Abraham had an inkling 
of what this represented. That his mere sacrifice of Isaac was prophetic of what God would do one day with his son. The thing that I wanted to mention about this incident in Genesis 22 is that this particular passage of scripture in Genesis 22, the Akeda, as the Jewish people call it, the binding of Isaac, this is the most quoted and the most referred to passage of scripture in the Jewish liturgy. It's in the Jewish, the daily Jewish liturgy. It's in the Sabbath liturgy. It appears in the, in the Holy Day liturgies uh, on, on the festivals. So it is a, a very central focus in Judaism and the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that he, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So figuratively, he did die, and God brought him back, being a, a type of what would happen centuries later, when God did sacrifice his son and raise him from the dead. We want to look quickly at the discrepancies and contradictions, as you probably know by now. This is one of my favorite parts of these books, is looking at these so-called discrepancies and contradictions. If Jesus was already perfect, how could he be made perfect through suffering? We read about that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Is Jesus our high priest, or is he our sacrifice? The book of Hebrews speaks of him both ways. Why couldn't Esau repent if he sought it with tears? We are told that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So if Jesus was perfect, how could he be made perfect? suffering. The Bible declares that Jesus was absolutely perfect and without sin, even in his human nature. But according to this verse, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. And to be made perfect implies that he was not perfect to begin with, which is a contradiction. Jesus was absolutely and unchangeably perfect in his divine nature. God is perfect and cannot change. But Jesus was also human and as such was subject to change, though without sin. For example, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. If his knowledge as a man increased, then his experience also did. Thus he learned obedience by the things he suffered. In this sense, he was made perfect in that he experienced the perfecting work of suffering in his own sinless life. That is, he gained all the experiential benefits of suffering without sinning. In this way, he can be a real comfort and encouragement to those who suffer.
Is Jesus our priest or is he our sacrifice? Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Christ is presented here as the high priest of believers. However, later Jesus is depicted as the sacrifice for our sins. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Which is he? Priest and sacrifice. Jesus is represented correctly by both figures. He is our priest in that he speaks to God on behalf of man. Yet he is our sacrifice since he offered himself on the cross for our sins. He is the offerer and the offered, both sacrificer and sacrificed. He offered up himself. So once again, remember when I talked about the laying out of hands earlier, I talked about how ancient Israel, the people would lay their hands on the sacrifice that was to represent them on their behalf. But they also laid their hands on the Levites to ordain them as the priests. So in the same way, Jesus is both our priest and our sacrifice. Esau couldn't repent. The Bible informs us here in 1217 that Esau was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. But why wouldn't God accept his sincere repentance when he commands all men everywhere to repent? and is patiently waiting for people to repent. There are two important things to observe about this passage. First, the statement, no place for repentance, may refer to his father's inability to change his mind about giving the inheritance to Jacob and not to Esau's change of mind. Because once Isaac had given the inheritance to Jacob, it doesn't matter what Esau did, Isaac was, was not going to change his mind. The circumstances did not afford Esau the opportunity to reverse the situation and get the blessing. Second, tears are not a sure sign that a person has genuinely repented. One can have tears of regret and remorse that fall short of true repentance or change of mind. For example, Judas in Matthew 27.3. Finally, this text is not talking about spiritual blessing, salvation, but earthly blessing, inheritance. God always honors the sincere repentance of sinners and grants them salvation. This particular incident wasn't about salvation. So finally, let's look quickly at the contributions of Hebrews. The distinctive embassies, the epistles of the Hebrews, greatly enriches New Testament Christology, especially with respect to Jesus' priestly work, the finality of his sacrifice, the nature of his sonship, the importance of the incarnation and his role as the, the pioneer, the trailblazer. The extensive use of Old Testament texts. This epistle enables us to explore the hermeneutical assumptions of first century Christians so as to better learn how to read the Old Testament. The nature of typology, the understanding of prophecy that goes far beyond merely verbal prediction, and the interplay between exegesis of specific texts and the constraints of redemptive history.
there are some 98 plus Old Testament citations in the book of Hebrews. All of them are from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, except for uh, chapter 10, verse 30. That's the only verse which doesn't seem to be from the Septuagint, the only citation. And finally, the contributions that Hebrews makes to our understanding of perseverance and apostasy. Hebrews links with some other New Testament books, for example, 1 John, that are vitally interested in the problem of perseverance of Christians and the nature and danger of apostasy. It continues to speak volumes to those whose hope pursues the comfort provided by religious externalism instead of pursuing the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And that is Hebrews part two. I'm amazed that I was able to get through it all. <laughs> Let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the unique insights that we receive in the book of Hebrews about your son, Jesus Christ, as our sacrifice, as our atoning sacrifice, the one who is slain outside the camp, but he is also our high priest, our advocate, a perfect sacrifice and a perfect priest. We thank you for these things. We ask that you would help us to go forth with this knowledge, with this understanding, with this assurance that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.